Well, hello, folks. Welcome to The Sacred Speaks. My name is John Price, and I'm your host. And happy Mother's Day today. And it just so happens that I have an interview with an incredible mother. And uh, we'll get into her book in a second. But I want to introduce Deborah Deep Mouton, and then we'll get to some housekeeping details and get started with the episode. So I'll read a bit from her bio. Deborah D. Mouton is an internationally known poet, singer, actress, photographer, wife, mother, and the first black poet laureate for the city of Houston. Heralded as a literary genius by Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee, this California native was formerly ranked the number two best female poet in the world. Deep has established herself as a notable force in the performance and literary world. Currently, she is a resident artist at the American Lyric Theater's Composer and Librettist Development Program and Rice University through the Center for Engaged Research and Collaborative Learning. She self-published her first collection of poetry, Heartstrings and Lamentations, at the tender age of 19 while studying English at the University of Michigan in Arbor. Her university years helped foster a love for writing that was noticed early on by her high school English teacher. After being introduced to Poetry Slam in high school, she knew she wanted to focus on refining her voice as a poet. After falling in love with the national poetry scene, she moved to Houston, became the 2000, a member of the 2007 Houston Poetry Slam team, and this goes on and on with incredible accomplishments. She's an amazing human being, but notably, this recent release, in this long bio, uh, her second book, Black Chameleon, published by Henry Holton Company, debuts in the spring of 2023. This stirring new memoir combines new mythology and with powerful lyricism. Uh, this is uh, so. This is her book, and I, I show it in the in the interview. Black Chameleon, Deborah Deep Mouton. It's a lovely read. I was weeping within the first ten minutes. Uh, so deep. Thanks for contributing your process here to my project. Um, this is the second interview. I interviewed her back in the '30s, uh, episode number thirty-four or forty-four. I forget. Uh, and she's become a friend, and I really enjoy her work. So thank you, Deep, for participating. Okay, on to a couple other things. I want to let you know that these podcasts, The Sacred Speak, is sponsored by the Center for the Healing Arts and Sciences. It's a boutique integrative practice that my wife, Leela Scott Price, and I started, and we are growing. So check us out at the Center, T H E C E N T E R F O R H A S, the Center for Haas.com. Check it out. Also, check out the Young Center, younghouston.org. I've got a class coming up for Wednesdays, June 7th through 28th, 6 to 7.30, and it is Join Us for an Illuminating Exploration of Myth, Religion, and the Burgeoning Field of Psychedelic-Assisted Therapies. Delving into the myth of Prometheus, stealing fire from the gods, we will engage the idea that healing power of psychedelics must be approached with reverence, mindfulness, and respect for their sacred nature. Drawing on Carl Jung's groundbreaking insights into the human psyche, as well as contemporary research on psychedelic substance, and the mystical experiences that they can evoke. We will investigate the importance of integrating sacred and religious paradigms into the psychedelic-assisted therapies. Together, we will engage in thought-provoking discussions and activities that will help us understand the role of psychedelics in modern spirituality and mental health, and embark on a journey to discover the profound insights and transformative powers hidden within the Promethean myth and the world of psychedelic-assisted therapies. So come and check that out. Again, check out younghouston.org and... uh, you can reach the link to the class. Of course, check out all their classes, too. Uh, as always, check out The Sacred Speaks at thesacredspeaks.com. Website out, uh, all kinds of new stuff developing. Uh, and check out Modern Nations, modernnationsmusic.com. 
Uh, the full selection of the theme song for the podcast, Clouds, will be played at the end of the episode, so hang out to the end and enjoy the tunes. And I think for now that's it. Um, nothing else other than really cool episodes coming up. A lot of great work being done, and I can't wait to release uh, next week with Rachel Harris, Swimming in the Sacred, where she interviews 15 um, psychedelic underground female guides. And it's a wonderful read for anybody looking to understand this material. So thank you for being here. Check out all the material. And for now, I'll leave it there. Happy Mother's Day. Deborah Deep Mouton, uh, our second time together. I was just looking it up and I said it's episode 45, which must have been like four years ago, five years ago. And so anybody watching and listening, check out that episode. Um, we reviewed one of your previous books of poetry and still stands out as, uh, well, you stand out as an incredible um, weaver of words. Um, but but you deliver so much more than that. And and I think that's why you became, the, the, the spoken word poetry was so powerful when I would watch you deliver your thoughts and ideas and perspectives. But this was different. This book, I, I want to, you'll have, everybody will have pictures of this. By the way, the cover is fantastic. Who did this? It is. That was artwork by Delita Martin. She's a Texas-based artist and she's phenomenal. Delita, so I, well done. Sorry, what do you say? You know, I'm just like a, a fangirl about her. I got to do an event with her and I think we were equally as impressed with each other. So we just sat there gushing at each other for like 30 minutes. <laughs> what an honor. This is cool. Yeah. It's a it's a very cool read. As I told you before, anybody that reads this book, get ready because uh, I spent, I wake up early in the morning and I do my reading and I didn't realize that I was going to spend my first morning reading your book, weeping like a grieving mother. And it, it ripped my guts out. Um, it's a beautiful story. It is very, um, very hard. Um, as far as like your heart, you know, it, it, it draws on your heart. I think it's a story that everybody needs to read. Um, so we're going to go a lot of different places. And I'm just so excited that, uh, that you're here and that we get to reconnect. And I get to pick your brain and figure out where you are in life. So We'll certainly get to this book. We'll get to your work. Um, but I'd love it for you to introduce yourself to the audience. Um, let us know what you're up to. And then we'll start diving into this. I'll begin once you do an introduction with what we talked about from antiquity and um, an argument amongst the gods. Uh, but yeah. first, let's just hear from you. Please introduce yourself for everybody. So my name is Deborah Deep Mouton. I am a poet a writer, an author, director, filmmaker, which is kind of new. I've been doing a little bit of that. And librettist, which is a yeah. space I didn't know I would end up being in so heavily, but I'm super, super excited about the amount of opera I get to write. And so uh, playwright as well. I kind of do anything if it's got words. It's kind of my thing. So um, I've served as the former poet laureate of the city of Houston. And I'm just excited to be here to talk to you again. John. I'm excited too. Yeah, and I saw your show at the HGO. Houston Grand Opera. It it was Patrick Summers was on from the HGO was on the show, um, and my wife and I went to see um, the opera. That's you're you're doing a lot of beautiful work, Deborah. Thank you, thank yeah. you. It's 
pleasure. You know, and it's it's an honor as an artist, especially during the pandemic. I didn't know if I would be able to keep staging work. You know, if that was going to yeah. be the end of my career in that way. So I'm just grateful to be able to still have those opportunities. Well, so then your 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 modes of expressing yourself really are multiple, and yeah. and I, and again, I was saying earlier as we were chatting. One of the things I'm really curious about, not only is to dig into your book, of course, because it's it's fantastic. It's a memoir of sorts with more to it than just a, a memoir. Um, that I don't mean to demean or diminish any memoirs, no, but there's, there's just something uh, else that you can tell that you operate as a kind of shapeshifter and um, you can navigate through a lot of different territories. And I, I really respond to that. Uh, but I want to read something that you and I talked about that may get us going, because when I thought about this conversation, I think about how often I'm reading people's work and then talking to them about their work. And what's cool about this conversation is it's kind of a meta conversation. We can not only talk about your work, but we talk about the um, medium of, of writing and poetry and that kind of expression. And so as I was thinking about that, this thought came to mind. And... It was a reference to a fellow named Walter Hanegraaff, who is a guy I, I, read, or I read and then interviewed on the podcast on uh, esotericism and hermeticism. And one of the things that came to mind was a story that he references about uh, the god Amun and Tot, and, or, or Tot and Thomas. And so I want to read this really quickly and then see where we go, because what, what this says is, in the story of Tot and Thomas, Tot, the Egyptian god of knowledge, wisdom, and writing, presents his invention of writing to King Thomas, also known as Amun, the god king of Egypt. Tot believed, believes that writing would be a valuable tool per, for preserving knowledge and aiding memory. However, Thomas disagrees, arguing that writing would not enhance memory, but rather create forgetfulness as people would rely on written records instead of cultivating their own memories. Thomas also believes that writing would provide the only appearance of wisdom, as readers would be exposed to information without gaining true understanding. And, of course, Hanegraaff used this story to exemplify the tension between esoteric knowledge and the role of writing in its transmission. He examines the relationship between esoteric traditions and the written word, as well as broader implications of this relationship on the development and reception of esotericism in, esotericism in Western culture. By analyzing the story of Tot and Thomas, along with other related texts and historical examples, Hanegraaff provides an insightful exploration of intellectual history of esotericism. Um, so the, the point here, I think, is that um, when what we're talking about is experience and the reporting of that experience and the ways in which the ineffability, right? Because our experience is totally subjective. And then we use these modes of expression to communicate to other people what our experience is. And as an outsider receiving that experience, I, I am biased because at times I take what's said to me as the experience. It is not the experience. It's a description of the experience. So we can get all into weird conversations about mystical experience and the reporting of mystical experience. But I think that's the real essence of what I want to get with you about, because you have these powerful experiences, and then you also have very powerful ways of communicating that experience. And so I want to talk about the art of writing itself, but also the ways in which you've experienced these experiences and why you expressed them in the way you did. 
How's that for a setup? That's a, it's a huge setup. Um, <laughs> you know, I think that it's this really great space to think, especially specifically as a black woman, to come into understanding the power of writing and the ability of being able to transform people by storytelling. You know, um, yeah. I think that, you know, as a writer, especially historically speaking, black people were not given the right to read and to write for quite some time. And so all we had to rely on was kind of the retelling verbally of stories. And uh, I think there's something in that to, to think about the fact that, you know, those retellings then became the memories because if we didn't have that, there would be nothing. And it's just leveraging that writing gives us of being able to go back and reach and capture some of those memories that may have been lost along the way. I also think though that, you know, memories change every time you remember them. And yeah. so whether it's the experience of actually remembering the, you know, the experience itself or being told about it, each thing has its own kind of falsehood, its own kind of uh, lack of factual integrity that, you know, falters and fails us. And so I, I just really feel like they both have their own space and path of being necessary. And we just have to interrogate which one we're trying to glean from, you know? Yeah, beautiful. Um, how much of... How much have you been diving into Black history as, because this, when you and I talked about doing this interview, I was so excited because I, I, I lectured this week with my friend and previous podcast participant, Robert Hilliker, on myth, uh, myths to live by. We were referencing some Joseph Campbell work. And, and then you were going to come into the office at the center and talk to our team about what you're doing. And then we were going to do the interview. And so I was just like covered up in myth. And so yeah. when, when you and I chatted about the release of this book, I was just so excited about learning from you and, and what you did through diving into Black history, but in particular, the ways in which these mythologies have woven their tendrils into the current day. So how far back does this go for you as far as looking at Black history and this oral tradition that you're talking about? Yeah, you know, I was, I have a degree in African-American studies from the University of Michigan. So oh, that's yes. one of my bachelors. <laughs> so that's great. You're a good person to talk to here then. Yeah, yeah, you know, there definitely is some understanding of Black history from an academic yeah. standpoint that that's been a part of who I am, I think, for, for quite some time. You know, even before that, my it's always really big about carrying historical and historical fiction. I realized that in, a, in an interview recently, how much historical fiction I read growing up. That was um, really interesting that, that that's how I kind of entered into the fiction space. Mm -hmm. And so um, that that's always been a love of mine and a passion of mine to dig deeper. You know, I've done the Ancestry.com dig craziness that leads you to nowhere. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm a, a researcher and a historian in my own right in that way of wanting to really gather, you know, my own personal history. And so there was a digging that came with that. With this book specifically, though, I spent a lot of time listening, researching, reading to myths, to oral storytelling, mm. digging into kind of the pathways of griots and how that shows up in a lot of African, various African cultures, thinking about folk tales and the difference between a folk tale and mythology, which I would argue is completely steeped in racism. But that's my own personal beliefs that those two terminologies are quite similar. Um, and sometimes uh, there's a blurred line between where folktale legend and mythology lives uh, and with the mythology being the ones that typically we exalt to a level of deity uh, and that typically mm -hmm. don't come from space to people of color. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there was this kind of deep dive that I did and trying to understand that context before creating these myths 
because I wanted to know the voice of them. I wanted to know their timbre. I wanted to know what their motivation was. You know, when you look at myth as a genre, what is it seeking to achieve um, and how different cultures go about achieving that mark? So, so definitely there was a deep dive there. And then I think there was a layer that was, if I'm going to create these stories that are deep seated in African-American tradition specifically, uh, the diasporic representation of, of African culture, then there has to be a level of Americanism and there has to be a level of reaching back to some tendrils of African cultures, but in a very generic way, because for so many of us, we don't know what country we landed from, you know, mm-hmm. and so it has to be with the lens of, of, of kind of grabbing from the entire continent uh, instead of having the specificity of a specific culture. What do you think that does? Not, not really knowing the origin point. Oh yeah. It messes everything up. Right. I mean, yeah. You know, I listen to a lot of writer prompts that they give for young kids. And it's like, write about your family tree. Write about this person that came before you. And it's like, but what happens when you don't know who that is? Mm-hmm. You know, when you can only dig back to your great grandmother, or at this point, I think we're three generations, maybe mm-hmm. two two generations to three generations from the enslaved people. So there's so much, I think, that begins lost. Um for me, I, the way that I entered into this myth-making was to take the sayings of my grandmothers, my mothers, and reverse engineer them into a myth. You know, it was like, if this is the saying I keep hearing in our culture over and over again, when did it start? How did it start? Who said it first? What was the context that, that made them say this, right? And if I can then create a moment in time that only exists maybe for me to start with, that I could ignite that saying the oral tradition then pulls forth the mythology, right? Uh, We could then unpack it and think about it in that way. And that was difficult at first, but then turned into this very freeing and permissive space that I could own as a black woman to come in and say, you know, you may have erased mythology from my lineage in this country, but I can rebuild it in the present day. I mean, that's a pretty powerful space to stand in, you know? Well, it's a kind of uh, resurrection, yeah, you know, the, a lot of a lot of mythologies talk about talking to the dead, and letting the dead speak. And in so many ways, when you do what you're doing in this book, you're tapping into a current of those who may not be named, but whose essence is interwoven in a, the patterns of our existence. And so the it, there is a kind of necromancy that's happening where you're where you're letting the dead speak. <laughs> no, I mean. I completely agree. There, there's a story in the book that centers around cicadas and using cicadas as a, a pathway to kind of an ancestral connection. And I remember writing that story. And then I had just lost a good friend of mine and my sister had just passed. And I went out in my garden and I was gardening and this like the chirp of cicadas just started filling the entire garden. And I called my sister's name and it went quiet. Right. And I was like, that's insane. And then the noise like slowly builds up again. And it could be totally coincidental. But I think there's something yeah. about like the truth that we believe yeah. kind of like becoming something that's bigger than us. And so then it started to become to feel really like at home, right? That the sound now is, you know, my sister, or my ancestors visiting me and, and having all of the things to say, right? Even if I don't understand them clearly, there's something really like sound and comforting about the summertime now because of that. And it's shifted the way that I interrogate in in kind of work with and live within the environment, you know, of the South, so. Well, and I, I want to define something, if you don't mind. Yeah. Uh, d- do you see me when I go off screen like this? Because I'm, 
Are you, am I still in the I video? <laughs> okay, good. Because uh, I, I, as you're talking about this, um, I want to read this because this is the way I defined myth in our lunch and learn on Wednesday. Um, so I, I want to see how this matches and what you can critique or add to or expand on. Um, it's about four or five lines. So uh, hang on. So a myth is a traditional story or narrative that often involves gods, supernatural beings, heroes, or ancestral figures, and attempts to explain the origin, beliefs, or natural phenomena of a culture or society. Myths often carry moral, religious, or philosophical messages and serve to convey cultural values, customs, and histories. Myths are generally noted, rooted excuse me, in the oral tradition, which means they were passed down through generations by word of mouth before being written down. They may have elements of symbolism and allegory and, allegory and can be interpreted in various ways. Although myths often contain elements of fantasy or the supernatural, they are distinct from pure fiction and that they are deeply connected to the belief systems and worldviews of the people who created and passed them down. Some myths are so deeply embedded in cultures that they continue to influence modern beliefs, rituals, and even personal identities. Would you uh, comment on that or expand it a bit? Yeah, I don't know if I can expand. That's a really great definition. <laughs> I would add art in your last sentence because I feel mm -hmm. like there's something about the representation of stories in our cultural art scenes. I mean, maybe that's in culture, but you know, one of the things I created with this book was I created an art exhibit that went with it where local artists were able to take some of the stories and turn them into two-dimensional artwork. God, you're doing and cool shit. <laughs> but you know, and it's up at City Hall right now. Um, what? The end of, yeah, the mid-April. But it's this thing of, you know, giving students, I worked with the students at Rice University to create their own mythologies. And then those joined mine to go to artists and have those enveloped into kind of some two-dimensional artwork. I'm thinking about, you know, the statues of, of Venus, right, that we get to see and that there's something about having that tangible expression of the mythology that does something beyond just the story itself. It yeah. makes it real. It makes it something we can literally touch, right? And so I wanted to start incorporating that into the way that these myths live, that they're not just like a great story on a shelf, but they're also the, the images you see that recall it back to you. They're, you know, the sculpture you can touch, they're tangible and you can feel them, um, even if you're not a Black person. You know, you're not a Black person in America, right? That there's universality to it. There's truth to it that you can oh. hold for. Well, and let's let's go there, if we may. Because as you know, the, you, you go wherever you want to go here, but I do. it would be really cool to have some of these stories populating our conversation. Of sure. course, I would love for you to start with the first. But if you will go into whatever stories you'd like to, because maybe if we had about three kind of solid myths that you were writing and drawing from, that would be really cool as far as a, a, a toehold for us and the listener. Yeah, it's funny to me. So many people connect with the first myth, which is called the women who were blind, because it's the first myth I wrote. So yeah. um, it was the one, you know, it's kind of like my first impulse was to explain how black women got eyes in the back of their head. And really coming from this space, you know, I think, probably all of our moms say this, right? But I heard my mom say it a lot. It was like, I got eyes in the back of my head. Girl, I see everything that you do. Don't try to play me. You know, it's just, <laughs> it was really easy. And I believed it solely as a kid. I was like, she could see everything. I remember my mom, I was walking down the hallway one day and she like was like, girl, don't cut your eyes at me. I was like, how did you see me? We are in two separate rooms, right? Um, now as a mom, I completely get that children are wildly predictable. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> and that they just do the same thing you did when you were younger, right? That's like right. It's not really that difficult. <laughs> but, you know, as a kid, I'm like, why does she know me so well? And I wanted to tap into that. But I thought there was also this great commentary about how Black women have been responsible in the political realm so much in society in the last few years. You know, if you've watched the trends, they've been on the voting side of progress, on the voting sides of more liberal views um, of spaces to give people more autonomy, right, and identity. And I think that that kind of prevailing factor of having to know the pulse of society at all times, being responsible for it and the responsibility of having to respond to it in a way that moves things along all kind of tapped into like the mythological eyes that show up across all mythology uses eyes in some way, shape or form. Mm -hmm. And so I thought it was a great space to start explaining kind of who I am as a black woman and who the black women are that came before me. And um, when I first wrote it, I actually didn't think it was dark. I just was like, to me, it was just, it just was honest. I don't know. And the more people read it, I had I've had such varying responses. You know, you said you cried. Oh my a friend god! Friend of mine didn't. I didn't. Get I, I would not call what I did cry. I like I wept. I, I, it was, it was beautiful. I, really, it's a beautiful story. Thank you. Hard, um, hard to hard to get into, but wow, necessary to read. Yeah. So I wanted to access this idea of mercy. You know, um, my mom always says, oh, "I'm probably gonna mess this up," but she's like, "Mercy is you." not getting the things that you deserve and graces you. I don't know. She, she has a saying and I'm messing it up terribly. Sorry, mom. Um, but it's kind of this idea that, you know, like it's the sparing of everything that you deserved. And mm. I thought about that kind of as a space for blinding, right? Um, that you can be blind to the things that, that have come to you or the things that you feel like you deserve as a person. And so that then turned into the physical blinding of the characters in the story. Um, and I've had people say that it's it was like start with a horror story. And I was like, I didn't call it horror, but okay. I've had some people who couldn't get past the second page. Um, and then I've had other people who were like, that was my favorite story of the entire collection mm -hmm. or the entire memoir. And um, it's the one that sticks with me the most. So it's interesting to see how people connect to that kind of idea. That's probably one of the longest myths in the entire book. Mm -hmm. um, and also is probably the most removed from memory in mm -hmm. the ways that some of the other pieces integrate from memory to mythology. Yeah. Well, it's true. You definitely get that sense that, um, that there, there, there's not that personalistic dynamic. You're really drawing from the kind of, I would say, archetypal patterns of hurt people. Uh, you know, the, what happens to a subjugated community of people and what kind of mythologies of redemption, uh, savior dynamic, like that's the image of the savior of the hero, you know, who's our hero. And it, you, you just let, could you share a bit about that story now? Cause I would love for folks to know kind of what it, what we're talking about just so they're not totally left in the. Yeah, for sure. So um, I created a character named Fumbe who is an enslaved person though I keep slavery very much at the perimeter of the world. Uh, and that was a very intentional choice that I didn't want to just write another slave story. Uh, but I wanted to write a story about a community that lives within the enslaved times and has their own identity. Because I believe that in so much of black culture, we did have to create kind of our own community that sits at the edge. Um, she decides that she's going to 
blind her child in the ritual way that the women of this this smaller province do, um, taking them out on the field or the edge of the field and blinding them in the dark. So that way that they can't be sold off from them, right? The mm. kind of damaged goods uh, way out, which is funny because it actually, while this specific story I don't know is real, it's got a lot of truths in it, in mm. that there were quite a few enslaved people who either worked very slowly or injured themselves on purpose in order to stay with their families. And so I wanted to draw into that and maybe just take it to another level. Um, she blinds her daughter. Her daughter then um, is reintroduced to the world and she's starting to teach her how to see in a different way, um, how to feel the ground, how to listen to the world around her and see it. And her daughter stumbles into water and drowns. Um, she's taken it from her and Fume then decides that she's going to um, bargain with God, right? That she goes to Yemiya, the, the deity of water or Mamiwati, Mamiwata, um, as we know her in African-American mythology. Uh, this kind of judging water god that for so many people has kind of guarded the middle passage and people as they kind of traverse that really difficult space of history and beg for her daughter back. Um, and she's gifted her back only under one condition, which is that an eel is commanded that tangles around her neck and gives her a second set of eyes. And these eyes can't be plucked out, can't be blinded. And she has to live um, and her lineage has to live with two sets of eyes knowing that they can't turn their eyes from really difficult things in society, but that they have to embrace them fully and whole. Mm. Say more about that last part, knowing that, because that to me is what you were talking about with the political landscape of women, black women in politics. Yeah. I would love to be ignorant of what's going on in the world. Mm -hmm. Right. Like, I would love to just put blinders on and like, it doesn't affect me. I don't want to do it. I don't know that as a black woman, I've ever had that choice. Um, I've always been someone who has had to be tapped in, who people ask me about things and I'm like, I'm supposed to know that. Why am I supposed to know that? You know, mm. there's this kind of expectation that we are the ones who are always with our finger to the pulse of society. And it's a difficult space to wrangle. It's also, you know, a privilege to know that you are trusted in that way, I guess. I question mark around trusted. Uh, but you know, that, that the expectation is there. I think also that this inability to turn away you know, I, I think about the first person who I watched die was in a viral video, right? And had a body with a skin tone like mine and was being trampled by police officers and shot in a train station, Oscar Grant, right? Mm -hmm. And that there's this desire, I would have loved to turn the video off and to walk away. But in our culture, where so many people were talking about it and you needed to know and you needed to see and you, you like you needed that as almost fodder to validate the things that you wanted to say. And, you know, as a black person, we have in the last few years watched quite a few people who look just like us be killed in ways that um, almost become a sense of entertainment. You know, I tap into that a little bit for my first collection, Newsworthy. But I think that specifically Black women hold that in a very different way, in a different space. You know, when it's your husband, when it's your son, mm. watching those things happen, you know, it, it becomes a part of you in a way that you can't devoid yourself from. Yeah, yeah it makes me, th I may have said this in our first interview, but Jeff Kripal made a comment about, in our in my very first interview on this podcast, he made a comment about there, there's a reason why our comedians tend to be Jewish and black. And we were talking about the value of comedy to express the shadow of the culture. And so there is there is a unique, and this may be why people lean on 
maybe, you know, of course, too much at times lean on black women in particular, because there is a wisdom and it's a sad, hard earned wisdom, but there's a perspective there that um, you, you do see things. Your, your eyes are, uh, we could say, larger in a number of ways. Um, because there's something sociologically speaking about being in the community and also out of the community and yes. being able to know and see the, the the problems with that. It's like it's like when um, you know you start dating somebody and they come into your home and they're like, "Whoa, your family just fucked up." <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, you can <laughs> you can see um, the dynamics that are invisible to the people within that particular tradition and that that's got to be a very um, burdensome load to carry. Yeah, I mean, I also would say that it's also the basis for the community between Black women, right? Is that one Black woman can be across the hall from me and go, and I'm like, I already know, I already know, sis. <laughs> like, I know what you, don't even have to say anything. You know, so there also is this really great unspoken language between us. And when I was approaching even titling this book, Black Chameleon, it was less about the changing colors that people completely associate with chameleons, though I do think that we're adaptable and we do shape shift quite a bit. Mm -hmm. But I started looking into the physical attributes of chameleon. And one of the things is that they have 360 viewpoint, right, that they could mm -hmm. see on all sides. And I just felt like that really did tap into how I felt and, you know, about myself as a black woman. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I wrote something I want to turn back to because it. I, yeah. You were when you said chameleon. I wrote code switching, and yeah. and it's something that I I want to just throw that lobbed ball out there to talk to you about. So what comes up for you when I say that term and we talk about the shapeshifter? Yeah, I mean definitely code switching comes up. There's actually mm -hmm. a story um, in here about me working at a call center, and the kind That's of ability I needed to code switch, which is one of the more humorous stories. Um, yeah. I actually almost took it out, and my editor was like, "We need to breathe, right?" We just, <laughs> Let us, let us just breathe. You're giving us a lot of heavy wisdom. Yeah. <laughs> just let us breathe, you know. Um, but I think that that ability to, you know, turn on the voice and turn it off and be more culturally relevant is definitely something that I feel like, especially millennials and above, had to do much more maybe than, mm -hmm. you know, zennials and, well, I'm a zennial, but then Generation Z has to do because, They've kind of we've laid the foundation that Generation Z gets to be a little bit more of themselves, right? Just, mm -hmm. a, just a little bit. Um, and so I think you know us being able to like physically alter our sound in spaces for professionalism, for expectation. You know, my mom always says, "I can tell when your intelligence is being threatened because you pull out all your million dollar words, right?" And she's Beautiful. like, "Completely display all of your degrees <laughs> Here it is. at the moment." someone yeah. promotes you, you know, and I think that's a toolkit. It's definitely like a weapon in the bag of how I protect myself and, and how I think about who I am in this world is like, you know, where, what side of me do I need to show in order to survive this moment? Well, um, and it, this is what, this is just to add to this for a second. I had this realization recently when, when looking at shamanism and certain indigenous practices in South America and beyond, because there's, there tends to be a mythology around the shapeshifter and, through allegory it it i don't need to know about actuals you know does somebody actually turn into a puma yeah. what when i was reading your book i was like no i mean because i i i resonate with the shapeshifter i've got a tattoo of a stick bug on my arm because it's camouflage and it and it and it blends in 
that is a very adaptive, highly tuned mechanism that we can use. And I, I'm a white man, and although I grew up in a family system, I'm very conscious of the ways that I can shift and maneuver. And as a psychotherapist, I mean, every hour, boom, 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 new story, new narrative. How am I showing up? You know, this person um, just suffered the death of their child, and the next hour, there's a person who's freaking out because their kid is making bad grades. You know, so, but but on on, on your end of things. I, I just loved how you put that out in the foreground and how it becomes something beautiful and not something to hide. You know, yeah. that, that your capacity to shape shift is a strength and you, it's hard earned. So speak of that. Cause that was a good story at the beginning. What the, the call center story. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, it's definitely rooted in the truth. I was working at a call center, which shall remain, remain nameless in Houston. <laughs> and, um, we would get these really wild calls because it was a center where we got a lot more rich white people calling in to book travel for some reason. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, a lot of people who worked in the call center were people of color. And that did not sound like people of color. Uh, (laughs) uh, If there is a sound, right. If there is Mm -hmm. an exact Mm -hmm. sound, but knew exactly how to code switch to be able to be the most accommodating and accessible to people who maybe more or more, you know, reserved about us. And I remember, you know, being able to turn it in. This is never the operator. How many directors call? Right. You know, just, I could completely turn it on whatever I needed to. And the second it hung up, I was like, girl, let me tell you about this man who called me. Right. <laughs> you know, so I think just like that ability to switch it and to change it. Um, also, though, led me into a little trouble because as people started to say things that were more racist, right, started to, to request things that were more problematic. You know where do you draw the line and where your authenticity lives, where it gets to emerge, where you have to keep it quiet for your own safety, um, or for you know keeping your job and your professionalism. Those those are things that I think always weighed on me, but but would always sneak up in spaces and ways that I didn't expect it. Specifically in this story, it's a an older Southern woman who calls and says she doesn't want any black or um, Spanish agents because she needs people who speak English, right? And it's like what? <laughs> um, and so it's, you know, thinking of that, of like, how do I show up in a moment where I have all the power to say something that's devastating to this woman, right? I've already proven at this point in the book that my tongue is magical and can rip you to shreds <laughs> if I need it to. So you know I have it in there, but the but it's a it's a question of, am I going to use it at this moment? Yeah. You know, um, and I think that that's the question we constantly have to deal with. You know, my mom would, con- and my mom comes up a lot because she's really heavily an influence to this book, but... She would constantly tell me, like, you have to be really careful with your tongue because you can Mm. tear a person apart without lifting a hand. Like, you specifically just know how to ruin a person. Mm -hmm. And so where something is flippant to you, you have to be the surgeon. You know, you have to really think about how it affects people. And sometimes that's been my greatest weapon. And sometimes that's been where I pull back in and learn to use my silence, you know. And, And I wanted to show that kind of duality within this piece. That's not easy for somebody to learn silence who has such a wonderful weapon. <laughs> you know, I got in a lot of trouble when I was little. I'm sure so you did. I, I, you know, I had to learn that you can't take words back. And yeah. just because I'm in the moment and I want to say the thing that's devastating to you, maybe I don't need to. You know, I should have put a story in about playing the dozens because it was something that I had to learn how to do. In you know, as a young child, is you know, I had older siblings who constantly would tease me and poke at me because they thought it was the ability to make me stronger 
And um, I had to learn how to verbally defend myself with them, you know, but, but those skill sets could not be applied at school, even when I tried, you know, like the, there was a time and a place for the, for every weapon, you know? Well, as you're saying that I'm, I'm back to that uh, narrative we were weaving around letting the dead speak. And with your interest in history, in Black history um, and myth, what, what else can you comment on as far as kind of communal orientations and mythologies that exist to support the cohesion of the community? I know church was big in your upbringing. You know, yeah. what, what about your religious and spiritual life and the certain mythologies that you'd encounter there? What, what do you say about that? Yeah, you know, my father was a pastor, um, was raised in a very Christian household. I denounce the word Christian, though I am a Christ-faith-centered person, because Christians, you know, they kill people and stuff, and I'm, mm -hmm. I'm just not a fan. Uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> so historically, they have some problems over there, those Christians. Yes, uh, but do. I do believe in Christ, right, uh, and follow the teachings of Christ. And so I think, for me, there was also an unpacking of mythology within the Christian context, of not just seeing the Bible as a space of spiritual recognition or guidance, but also as its own book that in and of itself is unpacked, unpacking it as a, a form of genre, right? Um, and so that's actually, I ended up creating a parable in this book because I was looking at, you know, the Bible as like, what is the vehicle by which that Jesus tells stories and conjures faith and uh, explains the world? And it was like, oh, it's living in these parables. Well, what is it to take, you know, the idea of a parable and reclaim it in African-American culture? What do I get to tell? And I ended up stumbling on the parable of the gardeners, which is um, a story where one gardener grows fear and one gardener grows faith. And they have to, I'm sorry, one gardener grows hope and one gardener grows fear. And they have to figure out what the implications of growing those two crops do and how they live in a world where they both exist. Um, and there was a, like kind of a stumbling in where I was like, is this too simple? It feels like parables are really simple, mm -hmm. but are wildly complicated underneath them. And I don't know if I'm really being as effective as I want to be. Uh, but I had to kind of like lean into it and just say, you know, and I tell people a lot of times haiku. So thinking about poetry, mm -hmm. right? Haiku is the idea of placing two items next to each other on the table and allowing your reader to make connections in its traditional forms. And so I think in a parable, the same way, it's, placing ideas in front of you, a story in front of you, and allowing you to make the implications and connections of how you apply that to your own current understanding. And so leaning into that kind of poetic lens, I decided to include the story. And since then, I've heard quite a few feedback, people have feedback about the story, that they really resonated with it and that they're able to take it and apply it. So I feel like it was somewhat successful. I don't know. We'll see. Now, the, the one point, I thought it was very successful. I enjoyed that story. The the point though that's interesting here is that you're writing these, you're you're creating these, but you're also connecting them to what? I mean, what what are the mythologies that you heard with a religious centered home, with a community? Like what what were the myth, the myths of your early life? I mean, definitely, you know, it was the teachings of Jesus. You think about um, the parable of the fig tree. You think about um, even the parable of the sower, right? Um, and the parable of sower, funnily, I, I say that one because it's both this kind of idea of sowing seeds in the Bible and also this call to Octavia Butler's books, right? The parable of the sower, where she recreates that as an alternate world where uh, in, in Afrofuturism. So there's this bridge of, 
you know, that these parables have even lived in the future already uh, in writers' minds and we're bridging the gap between them. I think it's great because for me, I love Afrofuturism so much, but I wonder, you know, if we lean towards the future because we don't have the permission to go back and to rectify the past. And so I wanted to shift the lens from being that I don't want to have to write a world that hasn't existed yet, but that I want to write about a world that did exist that we are not allowed to talk about, you know? Um, and so definitely those things were in my early life. Um, this, the folk tales or myths around Anansi uh, were huge for me. I remember my mom having this big storybook of Denzel Washington reading Anansi uh, in a very African accent that's, that's, you can't place as one country over another. I don't know. It was now looking back at it, I'm like, that was a little problematic. <laughs> but, you know, in the moment, it was what I needed. I needed to hear a voice that sounded like a culture. I needed to connect that to an idea of a story, you know, and I played that tape until the, the physical ribbon fell out of the cassette tape. And then I wound it back up with the pencil and played it again, right? And so I think there's always been this kind of desire of me to understand it. I also really love Roman and Greek mythology. Like just because I kind of like downplayed in the book doesn't mean that I don't have a connection to it. Yeah. Specifically, Medusa, you know, which is a character that my daughter is wildly in love with. And Historically, for some reason, there's a, the myth of Roman and Greek mythology that Black people have claimed and been like, Medusa really had dreadlocks. Medusa was really a Black woman. She was wildly misunderstood. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right? And so I think that there's that finding oh. yourself within a story that you don't exist in for the sake of giving yourself identity and room and space. And it's like, well, if we can do that, then we also can just create the myths ourselves, you know? I think this point is so important, and I'll... By the time this episode comes out, there are two others that will be before it. But the recent, I, I posted an interview this past Sunday with Jeff Kripal on his book, The Superhumanities. Now, this is a book you should read. I, I, if you haven't, I highly recommend it. Jeff, Jeff is essentially saying he's using black critical theory, psychoanalytic theory, feminism, post-colonialism and an ecological uh, humanistic tradition that where he's saying our religious traditions are, because if I could borrow from him, he says, look, I grew up Catholic and there's no way to avoid the gendered racist um, belief systems that are baked into the, to the narratives. And so he's advocating for a new story. I mean, and he's saying that it's it's we don't need to mine tradition. We need to write our new new religious myths, to to because um, if we just try to dig in or revive what came before us, we're still going to have the same problems. So I, I I'm really loving this connection with what you're doing, what what you're actively living out in your life, and what he's advocating for on an academic level that you're re you're writing new mythologies based upon your personal experiences to help give life to these patterns that exist in not only your upbringing you know uh, the black community but all of us you know like that's the power of these myths is that they are transcultural on some level you know they communicate deep realities that we need to look at and there's no reason why um I, I, why I would say like black religion, African religion uh, c can't provide us an inroad 
into a fusion between all the cultural traditions where we can start to like let the dead speak but also let the dead speak in modern tongue yeah Thoughts? yeah i agree you know my daughter she kind of hit me with this same kind of sentiment we were doing like an at-home bible study and i was teaching her about the holy trinity and i was like the father the son and the holy spirit and she's like mom where's the daughter and the mom oh amen and i was like oh, oh damn it ain't right? yeah <laughs> you oh. know and i was like you know it, it was this thing where i was like i have to give you something else you know yes. Yes, it's great to read about Ruth and Esther, right? And even Deborah, right, in the Bible. It's great to have Mary, the, you know, the one person that we the hear. The one. Of. Yeah, Mary the one. Thank God. Right? Um, but, you know, there has to be more than that. You, yeah. you have to have something. And then as a Black girl, who do you look upon, right? When every passage is wielded against you in a way, you know, when the Bible is used as this weapon against you as a Black woman, um, as this sin and this person who needs to be persecuted and slaves obey your masters. And, you know, there's this, this other tradition that's where we see, you know, that kind of problematic Christian that I talk about come up that uses it in a very different way in America, um, maybe than it's used in other spaces as not only just a religious, religious text, but as a political tool mm -hmm. to oppress people. Mm -hmm. You know, how do you write around that? I don't know, but I'm trying you know? Well, so let's go back into your history. You were the daughter. How did that influence you and impact you when you didn't see yourself reflected in some of those stories? I mean, you know, I think it's the work of Black readers, and it has been for so long that we read works where we're not centered and we find ourselves somewhere in them, right? It is like the way that we go about reading texts is I'm going to read this book and I know that there's not going to be anyone who looks like me, but I'm going to find a character who I identify with in some other way. At least good good writing does that, right? It gives us a pathway that it doesn't matter what culture you come from because you can see some tenets of yourself. We're yeah. all human. I should find something. Uh, it's different, though, to find a character who looks like you, who sounds like you, who speaks like you, who, you know, who brushes her braids over her hair and who, you know, who just has the vernacular that you speak in. It's just a different level of identity. You know, I was speaking at a event at Rice recently and I said, there's this whole campaign. If you see her, you can be her. I have problems with that because so many of us can't see people who look like us mm -hmm. still represented. Um, I think a better way to go about that is if you can imagine her, you can be her. You know, that there's something in us that has to be mm -hmm. able to see the things that are not there in order to propel us into a space that we've never been before. And so I think, you know, growing up, there was definitely that. It was you know, seeing pictures. My mom had pictures of a black Nefertiti, you know, Nefertiti as a black woman next to Cleopatra as a black woman. And those are things that were visible in my home. Um, and so I think, you know, she was very big on like Egypt is part of Africa. Don't let mm -hmm. them do that. Right. Don't let them take it away. And even as a teacher, I remember having mm -hmm. to teach world studies and they literally had me teach Egypt three weeks after Africa, right in the Middle Eastern unit. Mm -hmm. And it was like, I'm not allowed to access that as a black woman either, you know? So it it has been a lifelong journey of mine to figure out how to represent us again. Walter Mosley has this great quote, if you're not in the literature of a country, then you're not in their history. And I've held that really close as kind of my charge. It's like, as a writer, if I have any power, if I have any leverage, it is to make us unerasable in American you know, literature, and by which solidifying our existence in the American historical 
you know, framework. Now, that's a big ask for one little writer to do. You know, I realize that I only have a certain amount of influence in that, but whatever influence I have, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going to try to use it. Those are big ideas. Yeah. It, it does make me wonder about black critical theory and what we're losing out on by not allowing for those voices to speak, um, given that it's such an important um, narrative in the entirety oh, yeah. of our culture. Um, that that Jeff's point is that we we've been teaching black theory for a long, long time. Like, why is it all of a sudden it, it's bringing so much controversy? What What are I your mean, thoughts the, on this? The reality is black black theory is American history. Yeah. At its purest form, right? Um, who built this country? Physically built it, and those are the people who are not allowed to tell you how they did it. That makes no sense, None. right? Um, you ban the books that represent us because you don't like how you're represented in them. Mm. Why not teach students how to make their own assumptions and mm. understanding, right? We're given as teachers this Bloom's taxonomy hierarchy that's supposed to have children engage in synthesizing and analyzing at the top is at, at its best performance, right? But then we literally subvert that by giving them the exact opposite of that as entry points into education. It, I don't understand it. It's very confusing to me. And as book bannings, especially here in Texas, have begun to take root, it's this question of like, what are what are we doing? I, I'm very confused. It doesn't make any sense. I tell you, I, my, Leela Scott, my wife and I went to um, to Boston and we did this amazing tour. It was the Freedom Trail, you know, it was this kind of walking tour. And we had the, this amazing docent who we were talking about all the statues and all the all the figures that we're learning about. And she did a fantastic job of saying, hey, let, let's not take these statues down, but let's talk about the reality of what was happening. Let's let them remind us of these, the ways in which these narratives are not actually true. And she gave the example of Paul Revere. And she said, well, let's talk about Paul Revere and his story. Oh, you know it. <laughs> I Go ahead was, share for the people, John. <laughs> I was... I was blown away, Deep. I, I, you know, Paul Revere, like nothing I knew about Paul Revere was true. And all the, it was a propaganda narrative that was supporting a particular agenda. And if that doesn't piss you off, then you're not paying attention. And so, you know, we have these belief pattern, patterns that are centered on these false ideas that support an illusion because this guy was on the run. I mean, this guy was like fleeing and he was actually the guy that implicated everybody else. He uh, snitches get stitches. This bitch was snitching. So I've got to say. <laughs> yeah. So just that example. I mean, I, I was so pleased to know that there's somebody, this docent again, who is amazing, that's educated, who is not saying take it down, who is saying, no, let's let this interrogate us. And I think that's the one of the points is that my projection onto a lot of uh, one one minuscule projection is that on a lot of a lot of black theory there's an interrogation that's uh, that necessitates keeping your eyes open to your point whereas so many of us um who are not as conscious and not willing to to withstand the tension of dealing with the the beliefs that I have and the reality that exists. And rather than just writing that off, holding that tension and sitting there in the discomfort and saying, I have some work to do here. I have some work to do of reconciling these differences. And I, I, I for one, really like that opportunity 
to do the heavy lifting of, of feeling that anxiety and going, oh, fuck, my mind is blown. Like now I got to figure out how I pick up the pieces. But that's just one small example of an entire tome that exists of misinformation. Yeah. You know, um, people were like, I've had people ask me with this book specifically, why did I specify that it was a black American mythology and not mm. just black mythology? And I think part of that is rooted in, I believe, American mythology is revisionist history, right? It is us taking <laughs> revising <laughs> our best bet, spitting them back out. You know, yeah. I was reading recently um, Sojourner Truth's Ain't I a Woman speech and stumbled upon a link that was like, here is the original versus here is the one that is propagated in textbooks. Right. And that there's two versions. One is very articulate. And the other is broken into African-American vernacular English in ways that white people associate. That pisses me off. Right. And so what we have learned is a very different version of a speech that a woman gave (laughs) that was wildly powerful, but they can only take it in a certain package, you know. And Mm. as I've dug into even like Susan B. Anthony, Mm. recently talking to a friend and she's like, you know, Susan B. Anthony wasn't at Seneca Falls, right? She wasn't even there, you know, it's it, it for me, it's this thing of like, we revise the history to give the best possible mm. American story. We get George Washington and his apple, you know, we get we get these things that sound like really great things to hold on to. But they're so devoid of what really happened, because the color of that would have to be so much more honest, and we're not willing to interrogate that. And so in coming to this myth, you know, it's the reason why I approached the memoir pieces the way that I did in this story is, you know, there's a scene where I'm 10 years old and this guy like heckles me in the middle of a, a fast food restaurant. And that story could have ended with me being a crushed child, you know, who was devastated and who doubted her body for the rest of her life and was had, you know, weight issues and had all of these other things because of, you know, that moment of, of, along with others and other things, but that that was kind of the start of it. Or I could enter it as the revisionist American. Wow. Yeah. And I could revise that story to give me a, you know, a powerful wielding dragon of a monster that I fight in the middle of the fast food restaurant and I chop his head off with this giant knife of a finger, right? Like what what better way to end the story, right? Than is like this victorious, like slicing his head off, right? And, you know, so it was like this thing of if if American history is this revisionist space of storytelling. How much more do I, as a black woman, get to mm. tap into that and revise even my own understanding of my own experiences? And isn't that, at its heart, the most American thing that I could do? <laughs> I say you're in service to something broader and more expansive because an Apple narrative comes up as you say that. And of course, I, I immediately went to the Genesis myth and and thinking through, number one, it said fruit, not Apple, but that's beside the point. So, so that narrative seems to serve uh, a, a way to articulate deep, um, irrepresentable truths about the cosmos and about creation and about humanity. So I, I get the, that allegorized um, dynamic that shows up when we're trying to represent the irrepresentable. You know, these mysteries of existence. But the another mode of myth, as we were talking about earlier, is the social function. And so what what you're talking about is really powerful because the the ways that these, they're they're really propaganda myth, 
um, they're trying to shape and shift realities in service to an ideological narrative that seemingly empowers a base community, but has nothing to do with the truth of the experience. And those are two very different motivations for myth. But yeah. and what you're talking about is actually giving life to these forces that you've experienced in, in allegory in the same way that what they would do to comic books or, or, yeah. or um, other dynamics that help, help us relate to these social and cultural dynamics, but, but aren't saying that this is truth. They're yeah. saying that this is a truth of a deeper level. It's not some historical truth, um, even though there are threads of historical truth. Uh, as you said earlier about the the wounding of bodies to uh, prevent w separation of family, I mean yeah. that makes my heart stop. I don't know what else yeah. to say about that. I'm just kind of that this um, this thread on 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 you said it earlier. You where and I I wanted to circle back to this when you were referencing the the, the word folk, you know, so mm -hmm. mythology and folk tradition. And I must say. There are times when I've talked about black folk tradition and, and, and in one particular context, and I want you to bump up against this and tell me why it's wrong, is um, there's a syncretistic religious tradition from South America called the Santo Daime. And I interviewed a fellow who's a professor of mysticism at, at uh, SMU. He wrote a book called Liquid Light, and he talks about the Santo Daime. And essentially, this religious tradition is a fusion of, uh, here's the line, of Catholicism, of indigenous South American native traditions, and black folk traditions, because you had these three communities that were slammed together in, uh, you know, one invaded, the Catholic folks invaded. But mm -hmm. what happened when the slaves came over to South America, they fled and ran into the forest. And there was this like intermingling of the indigenous folks and then the folks that were brought over. And of course, that overriding narrative of Christ. So the, tell me more about how that word folk is used not to empower, but to reduce. I mean, so my first experiences of black or black American folklore were, I'll give you kind of three examples, Brer Bear, Brer Fox, and the people who could fly, right? Um, Brer Bear and Brer Fox obviously leading, leaving, leave. Ugh, leaning to anthropomorphism, right, of taking yeah. these characters and developing them, also completely written by a white man, which that's not to reduce it, but it's also to say that the person's outside the culture writing about that's the right. culture. There's a level of authenticity that gets lost there, right? Yes. Um, and then Virginia Hamilton's The People Who Can Fly, uh, which in this story, enslaved people decide to rise up against their master and instead of fighting back, literally take to flight, flying back to Africa and leaving everything behind because they're like, we're done with it. I'm sure. Yes. There's this small line that talks about that there's some that are left behind. Mm. Right? Um but what kind of character gets to take flight? That doesn't sound to me like a folklore. That mm -hmm. sounds to me like a level of deity, right? That sounds mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. something supernatural. Supernatural. Yeah. But it is not acknowledged in any way as African American mythology. Uh -huh. Because it right? There's this dissonance about that if it lives with us, if it comes from us, if it's birthed among the people, that somehow has a level that's less than being the space of an Athena or a Poseidon um, or these other characters, right, that we have lived. Um, 
which some of them were just the god of war. What does that mean? You just started a lot of fights. There's not really, there's not really a supernatural tendency to that. You just don't know how to stop picking fights. Um, and so, you know, you launched a thousand ships. What does that mean? You looked over and the army was leaving. I mean, come on now. What is the supernatural force? But for some reason, yours is considered mythology and mine is considered folklore. And somehow folklore is less trustworthy. No, I get that. And it's, I will say that my, the way I use it, to me, it feels more real. I don't know. It feels more like I'm sitting around passing stories down the line and the lineage around the fire. You know, like folklore yeah. to me is that kind of earth, you know, as opposed to mm -hmm. mythology has a kind of, um, but that's right. I totally get what you're talking about, that there's there's a kind of diminishment when we talk about folklore, because because, you know, whether we're doing that in the Pantheon uh, with 3000 people or six people around the fire, the the the, the purpose that it serves is similar. I, I want to read something that you've inspired. Um, you're inspiring me a lot, Deep, as you do. Um, there's again, there's this guy named Carl Ruck, who's a professor of classics at uh at Boston University. And he's got a list of 14 ways that myth expresses and pre presents the value of the individual and the collective. And uh, myths, I, I, for, I forget this book, I'll reference it at some point, look below. Um, but the first, out of 14, the first two way, the um, ideas of what myth does or how it, how it serves us, he says, number one, myth is what we call somebody else's reality. Our own myths, we call reality. And that sometimes makes a little pin drop that, that yeah. unfortunately, and I think this is something kind of cool, that when, when you are outside of a dominant tradition, you're able to reflect on the, the, um, the transient nature, right? I mean, the myth isn't, is it of solid state? It's very true, um, but it's not measurable and identifiable. Yet you can see it, as we were saying earlier, but then you also can see the fact that there is, you will hold lightly your own myths and not turn them into concrete reductions so that you become a kind of uh, zealot or a, a fundamentalist. That if you can see the nature of the, the mythic function in our psyche, you start to recognize that it points towards something that's irrepresentable. And you don't make the mistake of saying, no, this is an actual historic truth, um, rather than concealing deep, powerful knowledge that we need to transmit from generation to generation. What, what does this idea bring up for you around myth and reality? I, it's such a blurred line. You know, I think of, I talk about Boo Boo the Fool in uh, the book, and I think about the universe, like th that, that phrase, that person is referred to across all black culture mm -hmm. and no one knows who they are. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. like it is just your mm -hmm. mom being like, I'm not Boo Boo the Fool. I don't know why you think he was going to come at me. No one knows who Boo Boo the Fool is, who, what woman said that first, who they were, who were they talking about, you know, that there's something that is there as that universal truth that we are all accepting that there is an archetype of a person that your mother is not, that is a foolish 
that is um, reckless, that doesn't understand boundaries, right? That is easily deceived. Like the, all of these things are compact in one name, even if we don't have a story to go along with it. To me, that checks every box of myth yeah. that's lined up, right? Yeah. Though we don't see it as that because right. one, we may not have the story. Two, because it's so intracultural for us that other people don't accept it as their social truth that we can't elevate it to the space of myth. It just lives as folklore or just lives as, not even folklore as colloquialism, right? Like uh -huh. it then becomes reduced to just colloquialism, which feels more fleeting even than folklore does, you know? And so it's just, I think there's just this line that we have to interrogate whether or not you agree with me or not, you don't have to, but I do think it's worth the conversation of thinking about what is the language, the diction we're using to talk about the differences between these fundamental basis of understanding that give context to how my life thrives and moves versus how yours does, right? Um, but at some level is mythology for black people, whether or not you agree with it. I don't, I don't agree with that there's a Poseidon, right? That's somewhere casting the water forth, but I don't have to agree with it for it to still be considered mythology and acknowledged as such. At, at what point in time do black Americans get that space of having a canon of their own? Right. Where where is that allowed? Well, let me put that question back to you. Where is it allowed? Where we make it. Right. I think and I think that that was one of the prevailing factors for me as I was writing this book. You know, there was a part of me that's like you are born and raised in the church. Writing new gods seems like heathenism. Right. Like blasphemy. What are you doing? You know, um, playing in this space. You're going to hell. You know. <laughs> and then there was a space. It's like, no, it's reclaiming. It's, you know, it's reclamation. It's. Yeah resurrection in some ways it's cataloging yeah, yeah. it's canonizing this feeling this you know this just straight pathos that you have felt your whole life this even this ethos that you felt your whole life that's guided you in ways that you cannot explain and it's saying i'm going to put a name to it a shape to it a story to it i'm gonna i'm gonna put it in its own library and allow it to live beyond me so that when we're talking about it as a larger cultural group even outside of black culture there's something we can point to that gives us that same space of leveraging, you know, kind of coming back to that mm. first thing that we were talking about around writing versus, you know, this, this authenticity of experiences, what happens when the people no longer speak of the experience and the experience is no longer around to be lived, then there has to be some middle ground. There has to be some bridge that brings the experience back to the memory of the people. And I think that that's the beautiful space that writing plays, right. Of, being able to say in 50 years when, you know, my daughter is a grown up and I'm probably not even here anymore, or I'm very old in age and I'm not, you know, maybe as clear as I want to be, unless I'm like my grandmama who's like, I think she's gonna die a prophet, right? Um, you know, like, what is it that she, how the world has changed and she now can see how I interrogated the world and how those principles can be applied to her life, even if the world around her is riddled with climate change, right? Mm -hmm. And is politically a very different landscape. And, you know, for all we know, cars are flying according to sci-fi, right? You know, mm -hmm. what happens when the literal world around you changes, but the experiences still need to be there? Writing does that for us. Side note, is your grandmother still alive? She is. So is I have this, one this is, this is Ida May, right? No, so Ida May is not with us anymore. She's an ancestor. Um, Gma is still with us. Uh, and my grandmother passed away as well a few years ago. So I talk about Gma and grandma because mm -hmm. I separate those. 
my G ma is a G, right? She's she's the prophet. She's gonna lay it down. <laughs> she's gonna she gonna get you right. Um, talk talk to me about that for a second. What you call her a prophet? Yeah, Say I mean, more. One, she's literally an evangelist, right? <laughs> like there's that part that's like the religious designation. Yeah, but I think so is she is the truth teller. She mm. is very much the matriarch of our family, very much the barometer of wisdom. You know, like those things are all things that I feel like she holds. Um, you know, I see prophets as pe being people who not only understand the world in a very unique perspective and, you know, have, there's a certain kind of future truth telling, but also people who are un unapologetic about mm. the beliefs they have. Whether they're right or wrong, <laughs> they are unapologetically full, Ten toes down on what they believe. And I would argue at every turn, my grandmother is that person, right? Um, who is going to say, you know, she'll say, I'm 89 years old. Can't nobody tell me nothing. I know this world. You know, she's lived here long enough. She has a perspective. And um, I think it's definitely something I've drawn strength from. And she gets on my nerves sometimes. I love you, Grandma. Um, you know, but it's that thing of, I think, she sees the world in a very clear way. And it's informed by her experiences, um, which can both be a detriment and a, and a blessing and is able to guide us, hopefully away from the harsher things that she's, you know, exhibited and towards maybe some of the lights she's found. Well, you're you're hitting on a, an experience of something that you were talking about with this early story that I read, that Jima is steeped in her own experience. Oh, yeah. And And so looking at writing is what you're saying, that there are a number of people who read the experience of others and have those experiences, but don't have experiences and write about those experiences. And that's the kind of meta orientation that's so wonderful about what you're doing is that you're mining an ancient tradition of mythologizing and reporting on aspects of nature and the cosmos and personal experience that can be... Um, housed in a linguistic form that is representable to other people. So you're, you're doing the work of mining and ex excavating the experiential nature of reality and putting it into a form that's c communicatable um, to other people. It reminds me of this. Um, Joseph Campbell said something about the, the, the four functions that myth serves as mystical or religious cosmological, sociological, and psychological, and mm -hmm. how, how often the levels that we're talking about, like not only the, the religious nature, I mean, why are we here, where have we come, uh, where have we come from, and where are we going, um, but also the sociological function of how a culture exists, and what it needs to know, how the mythology encapsulates knowledge of how to exist in a particular culture, and that's something that I think is really powerful in what you were mining in your book is that you're you're a girl growing up in a world that you don't necessarily you don't see yourself reflected in as much and learning very quickly from these mythic frameworks that are passed on. Uh, and so you're you're such a fantastic intermediary to to talk about this. I'm so I'm so blown away that myth is right at the foreground of my life right now and we happen to schedule this interview this week. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, it all works together. It's, it's totally all... cool. It is. Yeah, no, it is. It's totally cool. Um, okay, so we've covered the uh, black critical theory, which I think is we can go into a whole lot more if um, 
But there, there is something that I want to mine into about, about your womanhood. You know, I have a, a good friend of mine I was talking to once, and he's, he's, a, he's a beautiful black man who's a gay man. And he, he, we were talking about his lived experience, and he said, he said to me at one point, he was walking down the road, and he could tell that the person in the car that was parked on the road locked the car doors. And he said to him, he was like, I don't know if they're doing that because of my, I'm a man, I'm a black man, or I'm a gay man. Mm-hmm. And to, to think in terms of what are they seeing of me that takes you out of your present moment awareness, because all of a sudden you're seeing yourself reflected in a, a threatening way. And so I just want to see what that stirs up for you, what we can talk about. Yeah, I'm immediately drawn to one of the stories in the book um, where I talk about fighting this girl in middle school (laughs) because she calls me a nigger because she shouldn't have called me a nigger. Um, And in the principal's office, she says that I called her a bitch. And from that, the principal then is like, that's not language we use for women. I completely get reamed. I'm punished. She's never handled for the racism, but I am definitely handled for speaking against her womanness as if I don't have, you know. I think that there is this really weird line between being black and being woman um, that we tread. <laughs> and, you know, I, I was thinking about, um, I'm working on a piece that's about Susan B. Anthony and Frederick Douglass and their friendship. And as we were thinking about expanding the story, we started thinking about who are the other people who have really high stakes in their success, um, to which I completely and immediately landed at Frederick Douglass's wife. And um, I was like, you know, she loses if either of them lose, right? If Frederick Douglass wins, black people, black men get everything. If Susan B. Anthony wins, white women get everything. And she still gets nothing, right? Like unless they are both successful, she literally sits at the crux of that. And I think that that's where we as black women have sat for so long, right? We've watched the feminist movement move forward with us in the background, heavily in the background. Um, we've watched a lot of the black rights movements. You know, I think of the civil rights movements and Mahalia Jackson and other women who were able to work alongside Martin Luther King, but were never able to speak alongside him because mm-hmm. only the men got to speak. You know, it's this very weird space that we've navigated for so long of only allowing a certain part of our identity to be the one we speak for today. Today, I could speak as a woman. Today, I'm here to speak as a black person. Right. Very rarely do I get to speak as a black woman in a space. And hopefully that's changing. You know, there's there's pockets of change that we see happening every day. But mm-hmm. in general, you know, it is kind of this other kind of code switching, this other kind of shape shifting where we're deciding what part of our identity is the part that will move the needle of progress at this moment more. Will my woman voice speak louder than my blackness or vice versa? And these things that I don't know that everyone has to deal with. Um, I, again, I don't know experience and maybe this is something that, you know, um, you know, queer white men deal with of not knowing mm-hmm. where to wrangle or, you know, that that there is a space of understanding privilege that white men deal with um, of not knowing where when to execute their privilege and when to kind of play more side mm-hmm. note. I, I don't know how those experiences work because I'm not, that's not my personal experience. But I know for me, it is this constant assessing of a situation. It's these eyes again, right? Of always having to scan and glean and who do I need to be today in this moment? Oh, so-and-so entered the conversation. How does that mm-hmm. shift how I get to show up? Um, am I after ready to to be quieter now? Am I after ready as a conversation shifts? You know, um, 
not to ramble, but I was in, um, I was in another city that I can't name right now because it'll give away some other things. But I'm not allowed to talk about. It. I was in another city, and in the back of this Uber, and this woman was like, "Where are you guys from?" And we're like, "You know, from Texas." Me and a friend of mine, and uh, she's like, "How are things at the border?" And that question alone, I completely knew who I needed to be for the rest of that conversation. Mm-hmm. Right? That at this conversation was going to be someone who immediately felt like the border was a threat, that there was caravans of people infiltrating. Right? That they're like, "We got to save America." from from the latins right um no not even latins the mexicans because everybody's a mexican right like like that that, that's a thing that there's not diversity um in those stories and you know looked at the black woman next to me and we were like oh okay Mm -hmm. it's Mm -hmm. good right immediately language shrunk immediately we knew the rules of how to show up and then it literally went to gangs and shooting babies in the face we don't know how it got there in five minutes but that Uber driver felt like their comfort level because we didn't push back was a permission to then spout every racist thing that they had to say in a matter of a five minute ride from Target to our hotels. Um, by which we got out of the car, looked at each other and went, girl, because that speaks everything for us, right? Uh, and was like, what was that and how and why? Sis, what's up? <laughs> you know, but that immediate thing of knowing how to shape shift, okay, yeah. new, new assessment, new world, Gotta show up, you know. I, I it's a question of so this. Uh, I'm going to ask this next question uh, on two levels. Number one, I'm, I want to use the term authenticity, and so in those moments, because I of course shapeshift. Uh, I was at a dinner last night where the friend I was sitting next to was like, "Who am I supposed to be tonight?" You know, like which 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 arrow am I to draw from in my quiver? And how am I to show up? And so there's at, at minimum, I mean, I tell kids, uh, you would know this because you've worked in schools. I tell kids all the time, you got to be really clear what jokes to tell in one classroom and which jokes not to tell in the other classroom. So how to navigate the complexity of a social system is something we all need to do on some level, except when that social system is trying to subjugate or quiet or silence you um, versus just... I'm adaptive and I can navigate through several different territories, not I need to figure out how I can kind of soothe the other so I'm not a threat. So mm-hmm. I, I'm curious, uh, you know, this question is, the um, how do you maintain authenticity and your vulnerability in your writing, especially when addressing these sensitive subjects? You know, like h- how does that show up in your written work? Yeah, I mean, one, having a great editor is wonderful because I can say things very honestly. She's like, wait, 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 I don't know. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> she did it at one point. She was like, "I, there's a word you use. And while I completely agree with it, the way it will be perceived is this. Mm. Is that the perception you want? If it is, we'll leave it. If it's not, I think we should revisit it because what will happen is it's going to be a hurdle for people to get to this other truth that you really want to get to. So it's a matter of weighing which truth is the most important, mm-hmm. which which portion of your authenticity is the most important to shine at this moment. You know, um, in the world, I think it's much like a wardrobe, you know, where like all of us have spare clothes for sure. Mm-hmm. But I think the amount of spare clothes I have to carry with me and the amount of spare clothes that you might have to carry with me are not the same amount of luggage. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's about acknowledging, you know, that I'm carrying a whole couple trunks with me everywhere I go to decide who I need, you know, who do I need to put on today? 
And and at the moment's notice, when a chill gets in the air, do I need to put a jacket on? Do I need to become something else? Do I need to complicate or, or uncomplicate myself? You know, um, and that doesn't just go to living outside of blackness. That's even within blackness, right? I think, mm-hmm. uh, you know, as certain black people who I know have certain beliefs come in, I'm changing even then within my own culture. And so it is this very layered understanding. And I think that I try to represent that in the work. One of my biggest things was to make sure that no woman in this story is where I was a monolith, right? Um, and that none of them were flat and none of them were flawless, that everyone had complications and um, was a little problematic and also a little celebratory. You know, like my mom is sits at the center of this story. And I asked my editor, I was like, do you feel like my mom is a bad person? Because if that's how I'm representing her, I need to go back and edit, mm-hmm. right? That's not how I want to talk about a woman that I deeply love. And- as an adult, I now understand that my mom made decisions that I don't agree with, right? I, I'm very aware that she did things, the reasons why she did them, why they made sense to her and why I will never do that, right? And I think that that's a level of growth, but it's also just a level of awareness as an adult and seeing my parents as not just these fantastical beings that raised me, but also these flawed humans that were trying their best to do everything they could, right? Like as a parent, that's what I am. I'm not perfect, but I'm mm-hmm. going to try to be my best version of my flaws today for you, you know? Um, and so it was really about trying to celebrate all that wardrobe, right? Is to show you here's my mom wearing a jacket. Here's my mom wearing a dress, right? Here's my mom barefoot running through the snow. Like here's my mom butt naked, right? When she shouldn't be, right? Like this, there's everything. And I want you to see her as clearly as I do, because I see all of these facets and I don't have to default to one. Mm. Yeah. That question of, uh, thank you for that. The question about authenticity is, is interesting because at times we're unconscious of how we're showing up. And so if, 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 and I, maybe this is too simplistic, but to, to consciously code switch with awareness and to unconsciously adapt and shift yourself, yet think that's you, you know, rather than those are choices that you're making uh, in the clothing that you're wearing. There's something different about that, you know, to, yes. to, to be a magician who consciously shifts um, and to be somebody who's insecure and wants to be liked are, are not to those are the distinctions, but that's certainly a, a, a powerful dynamic. Um, I mean, it's a dynamic that doesn't sit one apart from the other, right? Like, I would say that a lot of the code switching for survival is also steeped in wanting to be liked and accepted sure. and seen as equal, right? So, you know, it's muddy waters, you know? Right. Totally. Yeah, no, I think that's wisdom. Yeah. Um, so what do you hope that people are going to get from reading your book? What do you want them to get? So I've had this question asked. I'm I, sure. I, in some ways, I don't know. Um, in some ways, I just want empathy, right? Like mm-hmm. not sympathy. That's punk. I don't want that. I want you to really feel right. Feel like you can see us differently yeah. and that you can find something that you like. I connect with that in a way that I never thought that I would. And so that's like number one. I think number two, I want specifically black women who read this book, which it's open to everyone. I want everyone to read it. But black women who read this book to be able to see themselves right in a way that maybe an- another book has not been able to give them mm-hmm. yet. Right. To like, that's, that's it. You know, Delita Martin, who did the cover of this book, who's, it was brilliant. She said, um, I don't usually give my work over to projects like this, but reading this, I felt at home. And I don't know how you made me feel home in this book. 
I don't know how you took the ideas I was putting in artwork and put them into text in the exact same ways that I was seeing them. And we've never met each other. We've never talked, right? It's just, there, there was something that was like almost in the zeitgeist of black womanness that, that I tapped into that becomes so much bigger than just my own personal memory. Mm-hmm. To me, that's a huge compliment and also is the thing that I want people to take away. And, um, and then I think that I also want people to just have kind of their eyes open to look at the world differently. You know, to say that there's no story of any person of any race, ethnicity, social understanding that we can't look at with eyes that are open enough to at least evaluate their truths, even if we don't agree with them. Because I think that especially at this moment in time, we're at a place where if we lose the inability to be compassionate, if we lose the ability to empathize, if we lose the ability to disagree, let's be honest, and to be challenged by other people's viewpoints, who we become as a society is so much less successful when we're just living in the bubble of expecting everyone to have our own understanding. Right? Our diversity is what makes us beautiful. Our our head bashing and clashing together is what makes us complicated and, and a mosaic of a sorts. And so I, I really want people to lean into that and see that there's a st- there are multiple stories out there that we may have never conceived of before that still shine light into making us better people and um, better citizens of the world. Well, there's a disagreement that's held from beneath with curiosity, and there's a disagreement that's held together with rigidity. And I, I mean, I want you to shape me. You know, I, I, I want to have an, I want to have a say as a human being. I want to matter. You know, and I, I want when we come together, there's a kind of connection where we're we're intermingling and affecting each other. And if I let you, if I open up, and if I show up, I'll leave changed you know it's like a a moment like this for me is an alternate state of consciousness you know we're totally connected here and uh, and and allowing the the magic and the medicine to shape and transform us and i gotta say i'm looking right here right now at this amazing work of art it's been staring at me and delita i gotta tell i gotta say this is gorgeous and i you know and for me it's a real beautiful peek into um, some of the childhood dynamics of, you know, I, I, the ways I didn't grow up, you know, just uh, as a man and, uh, you know, with different hair and now no hair, you know, your stories on your hair. I was hooked. I was totally hooked into this drama and dynamic and, and how important the narrative is about your hair in your childhood and how much that, and of course, why Medusa stands out and the dreadlocks as this kind of point of identity. I mean, it was so beautiful to read that. Uh, would you comment on that for a second? So I don't want to leave that hanging so anybody doesn't no, know what I, I'm talking about. No, it was some of my fun, funnest is not a word. I, I'm going to say I could it. tell, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I had a totally lot of fun tell. writing that section. Yeah. You know, it, it leans towards a lot of fantasy and a lot of speculative fiction and also, you know, there was these really traumatic moments of my life, like my hair falling out, getting to relax it, right? That, that like is not my really my story. It's it's the story of black girls yeah. everywhere. And as I talk to my contemporaries, we're all like, "Yup, I know that smell." You know, I um I'm getting ready to release a short film that I created from the book because I'm crazy and I can't stop. You're doing so much, holy moly! <laughs> I think I'm proud. No, um, I I totally relate. I love it. I can't wait to benefit from your work more. I already have. Yeah. 
So by the time this airs, the short film will already be up on my cool. website, livelifedeed.com. Um, then look below. I'll include the link in the yes, show notes. Yes, So we created like a two-minute video where we took some of the text from the book and turned it into a short film. And it's uh. me doing my daughter's hair. And um, the what you don't see is the, the background, the B-roll, right, of my daughter seeing a hot comb for the first time. And, and she walks in and she looks at it and she's like, mom what is this and i'm like it's a hot comb babe and she goes it looks like it's from 1876 <laughs> and then i'm like babe no it's not she goes it's like it's like a rat tail comb on the top and a hammer on the bottom and I, she's just like having this moment and and i realized in that moment like that she grew up in a freedom that i didn't right like that i know the smell of a hot comb by four years old right like i knew mm -hmm. exactly what that smell was in the in the beauty shop i you know in my mom's house i knew what that that feel of like the hot comb hitting your scalp for just a minute before pulling out right like just those visceral things live in my body and they have never had to live in hers because she's her hair has always been natural she's always celebrated and we've always done a really good job of saying this is how your hair goes out of your body if you want to change it that's your business but like this is enough already mm -hmm. And so I think with things like the Crown Act coming in and talking about professionalism and about black hair and how we show up as our authentic selves in society in a legal way, you know, it only made sense to have a whole chapter dedicated to kind of this discovery of my own self and coming to being a woman who wears her hair naturally most of the time, you know, 90% of the time. And also, you know, this cataloging for my daughter that she now gets the freedom that she has to be herself to wear her big pappus of brown, right? Uh, everywhere she goes, because we've learned how to accept ourselves with these other really hard and difficult ways that we've tried to get out of being our authentic self, you know? Well, and that's the thing is that we're, we're I, I, might, I might not have that in my narrative, but when I look at you and say, oh my gosh, this whole story is about a struggle for self-acceptance, and the cultural narratives of the patterns that women uh, certainly go through with their hair and how much narrative can be, uh, how much you can encapsulate those dynamics in these narratives. And I felt that reading this section. I just loved it. I mean, it felt like I was getting a peek into your childhood home, but that I could say I was getting a peek into many childhood homes in, in experiences that are foreign to me. And it was a beautiful glimpse into difference. And I, I really, I just appreciated the opportunity to, because your words, your ability to, uh, to, to speak is so solid. I just loved it. So anybody who's watching, please, this, this is, this is well worth a read. And I, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, again, I'm benefiting from how you show up. Well, thank uh, you. So I, I, we've got to start closing out and I want to be, um, I want to ask a couple questions that are, I want to, of course, know your influences. And I want mm -hmm. to know, so so start there with influences and then we'll start closing out. Yeah, um, I'll say my most direct, Octavia Butler, Toni Morrison. Uh, for this book, Audre Lorde, right? Zami, a new spelling of my name was a biomythography where she taps into using mythology um, that she creates herself. And so there was a huge permissive moment when I found that because I was like, if Audre Lorde could do it, I could do it. That sounds amazing, right? Um, so, you know, that was definitely there. I think also work of Inazaki Shange in For Colored Girls um, and the idea of choreo poem gave me freedom to bend form and to say, you know, we can have a moment where she uses dance and poetry, but I can bend poetry to prose, you mm -hmm. know, and, po and prose to myth. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Those like permissive forces definitely exist in this book. So, and then of course, let us know what you've got coming up in the future. Cause it sounds like you are, your dance card is full. <laughs> yeah. I have a couple dance cards. Um, <laughs> so let's see, this will come out in Okay. So May, let's talk May. Good. So in May, um, I have three productions that are going live. Yeah, I know y'all. Um, May 4th, I'm actually going to be performing with Luke 38 at the Rothko Chapel in celebration. Whoa. Of- so that would be Beautiful. That's my, one of my favorite places in the world. Oh, because it's a beautiful space, right? Yes. In so many different ways. And then um, I believe May 12th, I want to make sure I'm getting that date right, but May 12th is um, the opening of Unearthed at the Wortham Theater with DeCamera. And so that piece celebrates the Sugarland 95 and the struggle of the 95 bodies that were found in the, the recent dig in Fort Bend County. They were digging to create a school and found the bodies of a convict leasing program, 95 unidentified bodies um, that they've been struggling to figure out what to do with for the last few years. Um, and so celebrating, you know, the journey of what it is to be a person who comes out of enslavement and only finds themselves enslaved again as a, mm-hmm. as a convict, um, and the, the plight to kind of figure out what to do in heralding and remembering their lineage. That's definitely coming out. Mm-hmm. And then the, uh, May 31st in New York. So if you're in New York, uh, I'll be launching my next new opera called She Who Dared, who's composed by Jasmine Barnes. Um, she, it centers around the seven black women who all shifted the Montgomery bus system, including Rosa Parks, but not limited to Rosa Parks um, and talking about their dynamics, working in with each other as, as seven wildly different women who all came together for one goal to change the system and to make their lives better for, um, for people beyond them. And so that piece of love with the American lyric theater, um, May 31st as a stage reading and hopefully a future production to come. And then I spend much of June on a European tour with my book. Um, so I'll be in Austria, Germany, and Amsterdam, um, kind of just talking to collegiates and, and folks who want to come out and kind of check the book out and have conversations. So that's like the most most recent things that are happening yeah, in my life. Uh, yeah, yeah. I thought I was busy. <laughs> wow. Uh, Dave, you've, you're an inspiration. You're a joy. I mean, I love reading your words. I love what you do. I love the role that you, you dig in socially. You've been a teacher of children. You've been a teacher of me. You've been uh, a speaker to so many. And this book was a, was a descent of all, into all kinds of directions from from the tearful realization of what realities were beneath your initial story uh, about the blinded uh, children um, to, you know, hair and (laughs) the way, the way that your hair, to the comical way that your hair was jacked with and, uh, and formed and shaped. I can tell you, it is such a joy to connect with you. You're obviously a, bright and shining star that's doing so much to contribute to this world. Thanks for that silver tongue of yours. I'm glad that it's never been directed at me to <laughs> cut me apart. <laughs> no, it's, it, you understand all learning, all sharing has been reciprocitous. I'm, I've, I've enjoyed every time I've got to share space with you and your wife and the work that you do is so important. You know, mental health in general is something that we don't pay enough attention to. And so anytime I can give a way for people to express themselves or to tap into especially really harsh things that they don't know how to talk about. I'm always going to be on the side of, of figuring out how to express that. And that's an important role you carry. Thank you.